Let's go to the Lord as we expect to hear from His Word this morning. God, we come to You and we ask that You speak to our hearts through Your Word, that You clarify for us what You've done for us in Christ, that You speak to us and tell us the role of the law and the role of the gospel. And help us to see the sufficiency of what Christ has done and how that works its way out in our lives. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, among all the people in our city, among all the people in Augusta, what do you think is the most misunderstood aspect of Christianity? I had the, the opportunity this past Wednesday to have a conversation with several people about their relationship with God. And so we got to talk about, you know, did they believe in God? And everyone I talked to uh, said they believed in God. Uh, Everyone I talked to said that they wanted to grow in their relationship with God. And then I asked each of them two questions that I think really helped to diagnose uh, what they believe about God and what, what they believe about what puts you in right standing with God. And the first question I asked them was this. I asked them, you know, if, if you were to die today on a scale from zero to 100%, how sure are you that you're going to heaven? And I let them all respond. And some said, you know, 50%. Some said 70%, 80%. But out of all the people I talked to, no one said 100%. And so they lacked some confidence in what made them right with God. And so then I followed up that question with another question. And I said, you know, if you were to stand before God... And he would ask you, you know, why should, I, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? And I got a number of different responses, but they all kind of came down to really two categories. People either said, you know, I try to be a good person, or they would say, you know, I place my faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I just want you to think about that for a moment. If someone, if someone were to ask you those questions, you know, if I were able to sit down with you over a cup of coffee... And I asked you those two questions. How would you respond to each of those? And what's, what's interesting though, out of everyone I talked to, no matter what their response, no matter what level of confidence they had that they had right standing with God, all of them would say they were Christians. All of them said that you needed to have faith in Jesus. But whether they said, I'm trying to be a good person or you need faith in Jesus, they all believed that there was something else you needed to do besides having faith in Christ. And that's why their confidence was lacking. They didn't have assurance of their salvation. They believed there was something else they needed to do other than place their faith in Christ. In other words, they misunderstood the role of the law and the role of the gospel. And I would say this confusion of roles between the role of the law and the role of the gospel is the most misunderstood aspect of Christianity in our city. And it's not just in our city. You can trace it all the way back to the first century because this confusion of what is the role of the law, what is the role of the gospel, this confusion was present in first century Galatia. And that's why Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians. And in chapter 3, what Paul's going to do is he's going to share an illustration or an example, and then he's going to answer two questions, and he's going to do this to try to clarify for us and for those in Galatia, what is the role of the law and what is the role of the gospel and how do they connect to to each other? What is the relationship between law and gospel? 
And so first let's look at the example or the illustration Paul gives in Galatians chapter 3 verse 15. He gives the illustration in verse 15 and then he applies it to the Christian faith in verses 16 through 18. In verse 15 he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And so this is his illustration, his example. He says, once you have a covenant in place, or what we might call a last will and testament, once you have a covenant in place, it cannot be annulled or changed or added to once it has been ratified or confirmed or sealed. Okay? So the idea here is that once someone makes a promise and confirms it, you know, ratifies it, goes public with it, no one else can come along and change it. Okay? And so Paul then explains how this relates to the law and the gospel. In verses 16 through 18, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And so Paul takes this argument and he goes back and he bypasses Moses and he goes further back and he deals with Abraham. And he uses Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham to help explain the role of the promise, the gospel, and the law. And so he goes back to Abraham and he reflecting on the fact that God has made a promise to Abraham. He's made a covenant with Abraham. He's told Abraham, I'm going to use you, Abraham, to bless the nations. Through you, all the nations of the world, world will be blessed. Your offspring will be numerous. I'm going to give you this land. He makes all these promises from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15. And then in Genesis 15, something unique happens. God makes an official covenant with Abraham. And in the ancient Near East, the way you would make a covenant with someone, a binding permanent agreement, you would do it in a a pretty unique way. What you would do is you would take animals and you would cut them in half. Slice them in half. Lay them on the ground and you'd leave a path in between. And then if I were to make a covenant with you, we would both agree that we would hold true to this agreement, whatever this agreement was, we will hold to this agreement, and to make it public and seal it, we would each walk through the middle of these carcasses, of of these animals. And what we were telling people is this, I pledge myself to this agreement, and if I break this agreement, may I be like this animal, killed. I mean, it was a binding, permanent agreement, covenant. And so in Genesis 15, what's unique about this is that God, again, reiterates His promise to Abraham. What He's going to do through Abraham and his offspring. And then He tells Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take these animals and I want you to cut them in half. And so Abraham does that. And then what happens next is is pretty amazing in that God himself makes his way through the middle of the animals. 
to demonstrate his promise to Abraham. But Abraham never walks through the animals. In other words, this is a one-sided promise. It's all based on what God will do. Not what Abraham will do, but what God will do. God will be the one doing the blessing. God will be the one fulfilling the promise. And so what Paul is saying here, he's saying that because God has made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, and this is how he's going to redeem mankind, nothing that happens afterwards can change that or annul that, specifically the law. The law does not change the promise. And next, Paul anticipates a question that may naturally flow from someone who's read the law and was familiar with how God was working in history. They may say, well, why the law? Why was the law given then if the promise is still in effect? And this is what Paul says in verses 19 through 20. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Paul says that the law was added. The reason the law was added was because of transgressions. Now just imagine for a moment that you're sick. Okay, You're feeling sick, something's wrong. And you want to go to a doctor and you want the doctor to tell you exactly what the problem is. You, know, you want a correct, accurate diagnosis. And it just so happens that in your town, you have the best doctor in the world at diagnosing sickness. And so you make an appointment, you go to the doctor, he runs all the different tests on you, and then he comes back and he tells you exactly what the problem is with you. This is exactly why you're feeling the way you do. This is what's happening. This is the problem. What Paul is saying here is the law is the doctor. The law is given to show man that the problem with him is sin. And that his sin is actually a transgression. And this is what John Stott says. He says, It is the law which turns sin into transgression, showing it up for what it is, a breach of the holy law of God. So the law shows you that your sin is actually a transgression against a holy God. Just like when you go to the doctor, you're already sick. The doctor doesn't make you sick. You're already sick. The doctor just tells you, this is why you're sick. And Paul says, why the law? Because you know you're sick, but the issue is you're sick because of your sin. And your sin is a transgression against a holy God. And so the law was given because of transgression. And that's the purpose of the law, to show you your problem. To show you your need for a cure. And the law is not to cure it just provides the diagnosis of what's causing the sickness and it's to point you to your need of forgiveness. So that's why the law was given. And now Paul asks the next question, the second question, found in verses 21 through 25, and this is the question. Is the law 
contrary to the promise. In other words, what relationship is there between the law and the promise? Paul says in verses 21 through 25, he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So Paul gives us three ways to think of the role of the law. You know, he's clarifying, he's hammering home, this is the role of the law, this is the role of the gospel. And this is how he wants us to think about the law. The first two uh, terms he used are, are verbs, actions of the law, and the last one, he personifies the law uh, in a position that was very familiar with those in the first century. The first verb or action of the law is seen in verses 22 and 23. And the verb is imprisoned. Paul says in verse 22 that the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. And this verb here, imprisoned, means to be kept under restraint, to hem in, to coop up. And it's actually used in another place in Scripture where uh, the disciples were fishing. You might remember this story. They were fishing and they, were fi- they had fished all night and they had caught nothing. And they're bringing in the boats and Jesus tells them, go back out and put your nets over this side of the boat. And they reluctantly do so and then they bring in all the fish. Well, the same verb is used when it talks about they took their nets and they enclosed a great number of fish. They wrapped it all up. And what Paul is saying here is that the law shows us the far-reaching effects of our sin. Everything has been touched by it and nothing has escaped from it. We've all been imprisoned by sin. The second verb or action of the law is seen in verse 23. Paul says... Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. This idea of being held captive, being confined, uh, it's used, uh, for example, in a city to refer to you know, being protected by military guards to keep people out and also to keep people in the city. And so not only is everything affected by sin, but the law says and shows us that we are helpless to deliver ourselves from the power of sin. We are held captive, and the law shows us that. We are held captive by sin, and you cannot deliver yourself from captivity. You're imprisoned, you're held captive by the law, and the third way Paul explains the role of the law is by calling it our guardian. Now, We see this term in verses 24 and 25. And he says in verse 24, The law was our guardian until Christ came. And John Stott says this pedagogos, this guardian. The role of the guardian was not to teach you, 
but rather to discipline you. It was a person, in a, it was like a slave in a household that would make sure the children got to school, you know, that they did what they were supposed to do. But the, but the guardian himself did not teach. All he did was to discipline. And that's why John Stott says he was often harsh to the point of cruelty. And this person is usually depicted in ancient drawing, drawings with a rod or a cane in his hand. And so all this ties in, this idea of the law being our guardian, we're in prison, we're held captive by the law. It all ties into how I describe the law as a doctor who diagnoses your sickness. You know, when you go to a doctor, something's wrong, you go to the doctor, what you want is a proper, accurate diagnosis, right? I mean, you want to know what's wrong, what's causing this, but that's not ultimately what you want, right? Yes, you want a proper diagnosis, but the reason you want a proper diagnosis is because you want the cure. You want to be able to treat it, and you want to get better. And on a side note, have you ever been misdiagnosed with something? Have you ever gone to the doctor and they say, yeah, you have this, and so you start taking medicine for it, and you realize, you know, this isn't getting any better. This has happened in our family. You know, someone was diagnosed with something, we got on this medicine, we took the medicine, just like the doctor said, and it didn't go away. It didn't fix the problem. And on a side note, this, you know, we all have a problem. And the Bible says our problem is sin. We've transgressed the holy law of God. But our culture tries to diagnose our problem differently. And tries to point us to a number of different cures other than Christ to fix our problem. And so we take the medicine, and guess what? It doesn't get better. It doesn't bring us into right standing with God. And what we want, if we're honest with ourselves, what we want is a cure. We want what's going to work, what's going to fix the issue in our souls. And what we see here is the law is our guardian. We've been imprisoned by it. We've been held captive by it. In other words, it's showing us our need for a cure. The law was never meant to cure you. It was only meant to point you to, to the cure. And Paul says this in verses 21 through 22. He says, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so the law, it turns out, is the best doctor in the world. I mean, the law does a great job at accurately diagnosing your problem and then pointing you to the cure. And that's what good doctors do. They, they tell you, this is your problem, but the doctor cannot cure you. All the doctor can do is say, take this medicine, go through this treatment, do this, do that. But the doctor has no power in and of, its, of himself to cure you. All he can do is diagnose and then point you to the cure. And that's the role of the law. And it's interesting, one commentator said this, that so many of us try to get to the cure. In other words, we try to get to Christ without first meeting Moses. There's no cure for those who 
don't believe they're sick, right? You have to realize your need for grace, your need of forgiveness before you're going to embrace it. And that's the role of the law, to show you your need for Christ. And so the law is like a good doctor that properly diagnoses our sin problem and points us to the cure that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he has been born again. If any man is in Christ, he has been saved by grace through faith that not of themselves, not a result of works that no one should boast. From beginning to end, Christ is the cure. So if you're not 100% sure that you're going to heaven or that you've been made right with God through Christ, then your faith is in something other than Christ. Because the death of Christ, and this is what I explained to those folks on Wednesday, the death of Christ is sufficient to cover your sin. It's sufficient to put you in a right relationship with God. You don't need to add to it, take away from it. It's sufficient in and of itself. And what Paul is hammering home here is the role of the guardian, the role of the law is to lead you to Christ. And once you're in Christ, Paul says, you have no need for a guardian. You have moved to a place right standing with God because of what Christ has done for you. And you know this to be true, and I do as well, that there are many Christians living out their lives under tremendous burden and anxiety and uncertainty because they think to themselves, I must do this or do that to be right with God. And it's a crushing burden. That's why Paul says, what the law does is it shows you you're imprisoned. You're held captive. You're under a guardian. You can't deliver yourself. That's the pressure it puts on you and shows you you need someone else to come along and deliver you. And how many Christians, even though they're free in Christ, are experiencing the burden and the anxiety and the uncertainty in their walk with God because they still are trying to go back under the law. And they're not clinging to the sufficiency that's in Christ. So how about you? Are you sure that you have a relationship with God? Do you, do you believe that your standing with God is solely based on what Christ has done? You know, if you were to stand before God and He were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell Him? You know, this past Wednesday, you know, when I, when I was able to share with these different people and I was able to just explain through the Scripture the sufficiency of Christ and what He's done for them. And it's all about what Christ has done and it's nothing that you do. As I shared that with them, you saw, you saw the guardian losing his grip. And you saw the, the prison doors begin to open. And you saw the grace of God being unleashed in their lives. And physically, you could see it. You could see it in their face. This one boy told me, he said, this one man, he told me, it's like I'm chained to the wall and I can't go forward. <laughs> That's exactly right. If you are under the law, 
and you think you can save yourself, you will stay chained to that wall. The only way to freedom and to be who God wants you to be is by totally resting and depending on what Christ has done. And so, you can experience that same freedom. You know, if the guardian has taken you to a place where you see your sin and you see your need for a Savior, then you can experience that same forgiveness this morning as you come to the cure. If you come to Christ, you can be forgiven. By coming to Christ, you can experience freedom. By coming to Christ, you can inherit eternal life. And so now as we respond to the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ, I invite you to come and give your life to Christ if you have not already. And as we stand and as we sing and as we respond to God, if you want to place your faith in Christ, I invite you to meet me at the front and make that public. Or if you're someone who, you know you have faith in Christ, but you've been under the burden of trying to go back in chains again. Will you just confess that to the Lord and run to the sufficiency of Christ? So now as we stand and we respond to God in song and respond to His grace, I'll meet you at the front if you'd like to place your faith in Him.